Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, and I'm joined today, it's always a lovely day, when I'm joined by Reenie Miles. Reenie, how are you? I'm good, Stuart. Good, good. How are you? Yes, I am also good. Actually, I'm really excited today because our, our guest today is uh, going to talk about something that I, apparently is really big, but I didn't know it was big when I moved here, which is the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, which, you know, to first approximation may actually be the reason that I do almost all of what I do. I just didn't learn that until, you know, the last couple of years. Um, so super fired up. Uh, the weather is getting cool, which makes Carolyn happy. I had a nice bike ride today. It was 20 degrees out, but we'll take it. We're expecting snow tomorrow, so there you go. We're expecting snow tomorrow. There we go. But before we do, Rini, you know it's near the end of the year, and that means that it is Lakey season. It is time to nominate things for our annual award ceremony, the Lakeys. And what we like to do this time of year, when I remember, which is uh, not as often as maybe should be, is we like to feature a Lakey nominee, and this is one, I didn't do this, but I went through and looked through the Lakey nominees, and uh, one that was in there, Rini, was the series of videos on Great Lakes areas of concern produced by none other than Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. You were involved in these, weren't you? I was, I was. Um, it was It was a really um, great project to be a part of. Um, it's Our, our focus was revitalization, um, and uh, we worked with uh, Great Lakes Outreach Media, which is David Ruck, um, and we went to five Great Lakes areas of concern to talk to folks about the contamination, the cleanup, the restoration, and the revitalization of these communities. And it's like, it's just such a feel-good story. <laughs> you know, just It is. And these videos... These videos are cool, right? They're about five minutes each, three three to five minutes maybe, yeah. but they're really professional. Uh, so listeners that teach me about the Great Lakes might be put off by how <laughs> professional they are compared to, say, this, um, but they're, they've got nice shine. That's Great Lakes Outreach Media. Is that who you said? The, yeah. the... And I think we can, we can thank uh, those guys for it. <laughs> okay. So I will, well, no, I think your guiding hand and also Pat Charleboy, I know had a big part in it as well, in addition to our great partners at EPA, Great Lakes National Program Office. But if, if we had to send people out to look at just one, if you wanted to highlight one for people to look at, which one should they go watch? Oh, man, it's so hard. Well, I guess I do like the Buffalo one because because there's a lot of drone footage of the grain silos in, along the Buffalo River, which are... Um, I mean, everyone loves a grain silo, and um, yeah. yeah, and and then as the story goes on, you know, there's you could see folks hanging out, kayaking, you know, just living by the river, and it's you know, it's a nice transformation. It was really great, and I actually watched that one right before I went to Buffalo for a workshop this summer. Um, I think it was just after I can't remember if this one had been released or not or anyway, but I I'd seen it if not because I've got back-end access. And uh, I watched it and I went and visited the, the waterfront there and, and saw it in person. It was really great. Well, that is fantastic. Uh, so yeah, these Great Lakes Areas of Concern videos, there are five of them from Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant and um, Great Lakes Media uh, in partnership, of course, with the Great Lakes National Program Office. It's really awesome work, but will it win a lakey? Tune in to find out. And you can nominate your own uh, work or any other work for the lakeys if you go to uh, bit.ly slash lakeys22 that's with a capital l l-a-k-i-e-s 22 and nominate uh, things in a variety of great categories but Rini, hmm. that's enough of that okay 
<laughs> it's time to get going. Uh, we're going to uh, move right into our interview. And, and the, the good news is, is that our interviewee is, um, he works with the Great Lakes National Program Office. And the last time we interviewed somebody from Glenpo, we got my favorite snippet of sound, I think, in the history of Teach Me About the Great Lakes. So in lieu of transitional music, which is what we would normally play here, we're just all going to listen to Captain Dean on the uh, Lake Guardian. <laughs> Our guest today is Chris Korleski. He is the director of the Great Lakes National Program Office with US EPA. Chris, how are you today? Well, and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're we're glad to have you. So let's um we want to talk a lot about the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement because this is the 50th anniversary of this really important agreement. But before we even get there, I'd like to know your origin story. How does one become director of of uh, the Great Lakes National Program Office. Um, how did you get into this line of work, I suppose? Um, so in some ways, it's been a long circuitous path. Um, but when I was uh, 17 years old, amazingly enough, I had the opportunity to be selected um, uh, to work for something called the Youth Conservation Corps. Um, it doesn't really exist anymore, but it was an opportunity to give young people a chance to go out into the woods um, and A, build nature trails, build bridges, do various kinds of environmental uh, restoration work um, in our parks, nature preserves. But also, um, we were provided with a lot of environmental uh, education. Um, as a, you know, I was a blue-collar kid growing up in Northeast Ohio. I hadn't really thought much about the environment prior to that point, other than the fact that, you know, that was 1976. We were all inundated to a certain extent with Eagle songs and John Denver and, and, you know, the environment was sort of everywhere. But after that experience, that pretty much did it for me. And I've been engaged in environmental protection ever since. I, uh, I studied soils uh, in college uh, and in graduate school. I went to law school and then I wanted to practice environmental law. So um, I worked as an assistant attorney general in the state of Ohio doing environmental enforcement uh, for eight years. Then I went to Honda, believe it or not, uh, Honda of American Manufacturing. Uh, they make a lot of cars in Ohio. And uh, I was their environmental counsel, their in-house environmental counsel for about 11 years. And then through a very unexpected circumstance, I was asked to be um, the director of Ohio EPA uh, for then Governor Ted Strickland. And when Ted's term was over, I was fortunate to be able to um, end up moving to Chicago to take over the role of director of the Great Lakes National Program Office. So again, circuitous, but it's been all about environmental protection for a long time now. That's interesting. And I always love to hear about sort of those youth experiences, right? In this case, it was, <laughs> I guess, Eagle Songs, John Denver and the Youth Conservation Corps. But it it, uh, it speaks to some of the important, how important it can be to, to have kids early exposed to things like the environment and natural resources. Absolutely. And in fact, that's an issue that if we have a minute, I may mention, you know, one of the things now when I go to a lot of the meetings of my compatriots, there are too many of my compatriots. And by that, I mean too many, well, older, gray haired people. And I don't see the numbers of young people that I would like to see or people of color that I would like to see um, getting engaged. So, uh, you know, we it's not the 60s or 70s anymore. And I, I think that's an issue that we need to think about how to make sure that the young people are getting engaged and, and, and educated about environmental issues. And hopefully, 
you know, driving some interest, generating some interest um, in the younger generations. Okay, now that you've led us slightly down this rabbit hole, do you have thoughts on like what we might do to do that? I mean, a lot of the work we do at Sea Grant is related to that in education and stuff, but do you have any thoughts on, on how to head down that path? Well, under the what we call the GLRI, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, um, we are trying to do a lot of that by uh, not so much directly engaging with students per se, but we're doing a lot of, I guess I would call it teach the teacher, where we're trying to get educators across the Great Lakes um, uh, involved in and well-versed in Great Lakes matters, including things like taking them out on the Lake Guardian for a couple of days. Um, as people heard, the Lake Guardian has a very great um, foghorn, if you will, uh, but it's a great research vessel and getting teachers out there um, for a couple of days and, and teaching them about the Great Lakes with the idea that they'll teach their students, it seems to be successful and, and, and it's working and it's something that we want to keep doing. So um, speaking of the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, the Water Quality Agreement was signed in 1972. What, was, what, what were the Great Lakes like back then and, and how did the agreement come about? So, um, Irene, not good. Uh, in general, they, the Great Lakes were not in great shape in 1972, um, nor was much of uh, the natural environment, be it air, water, um, land in many places across the United States. So um, the Water Quality Agreement, like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Water Act, um, uh, they all came out at roughly the same time, within a few years of each other. I think the first was 1970. Uh, I think that was the Clean Air Act. And then 1972, I think, was the Water Quality Agreement and the Clean Water Act. All of that was a, was a response to a dire need for environmental improvements in, in the Great Lakes Basin um, and in our waterways and in our, our air in general. Uh, obviously, we're here to focus on the Great Lakes and, and water, but industrial pollution, it, it's hard to imagine now, but prior to the Clean Water Act, there really was not a systematic way of regulating um, the discharge of pollutants from you know, our, our factories, our large factories. Um, when we think of the old Great Lakes back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I think we have a view of you know heavily industrialized cities, well, because they were. Um, they employed a tremendous amount of people. Um, they uh, The cities employed a lot of people, and they provided homes to all kinds of industries, steel, chemicals, um, manufacturing, you name it. Well, in those days, though, again, a lot of the wastes were simply discharged into the nearest stream or river, and a lot of that ended up in or near the Great Lakes. So um, just people talked about the Cuyahoga River fire uh, uh, catching on fire in 1968, 69. It had certainly happened for a number of times before that, but that was just, I think, sort of a, a, a hinge point where people recognize, boy, this really is bad. But Congress got engaged, the public got engaged, there was a widespread understanding, um, I think bipartisan understanding that something had to be done. And both the Water Quality Agreement and the Clean Water Act are, are products of that understanding. Uh, but they were dirty, no question about it. Yeah, that's true. And the Clean Water Act is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year as, as well, as I, I that, That's uh, accurate. Point out. Yeah, so, okay, so then, 
there was this idea that we want to have come to some sort of an agreement. Do you know, and, and this was, as you mentioned, this was a, a little before you were uh, administering federal programs. But um, so how did the U.S. and Canada come together uh, to come to this agreement? Do you know? So I think ultimately what it, it sounds simplistic, but what drove this was um, the, the very simple recognition that our Great Lakes are, with the exception of Lake Michigan, they are binational uh, in in the four lakes. You can pretty much divide the lakes almost in the middle, not exactly, but almost in the middle between the United States and Canada. And I think there was an understanding by both federal governments that um, it had to be a binational effort because if both sides weren't working to address the issues, which were similar on both sides of the lakes, um, it, it would be, if not meaningless, certainly not as beneficial as it would be with everyone chipping in and working together. So I think that's what drove the U.S. and Canada to say, okay, we jointly need to try to figure out how to address this problem. And the water quality agreement was born. So then we have this agreement. They, they signed this agreement in 1972. What does the agreement state, you know, in, in broad terms, like what did it, what is, what is the agreement? What did they agree to do? Is it just address the Great Lakes or, or more specific than that or what? Well, actually, addressing the Great Lakes is a, is a great way to put it, at least in, in very general terms. One thing that, that I often mention is that unlike the Clean Water Act, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement is, is not a law. It's not something that if somebody violates the water quality agreement, they can be subject to penalties or, or, or that sort of thing. I think the agreement represents um, an aspirational and visionary approach by which both parties will set goals and targets and most importantly, continue to talk to each other about how to achieve those targets. But uh, one of the fundamental hallmarks of the agreement is that Canada and the U.S. have, have jointly agreed to try to uh, restore, protect, enhance, clean up the Great Lakes using their own respective domestic authorities. Now, that sounds a little legalistic, but what that basically means is um, it's not some sort of binational law that everyone has to comply with. Rather, it sets agreed upon goals and objectives for what needs to get better and it encourages and empowers the parties to do what they can on their respective sides of the border while maintaining close communication with each other. So what were some of the, the issues um, that were highlighted in back, you know, in the 70s and how, how did they change over the years? So, oh, well, a, a great question. Well, Amazingly enough, some of them are very similar to what we're struggling with now. There was a tremendous nutrient issue in 1972. Nutrients, you know, we throw around the term nutrients, but basically what that means in, in the Great Lakes is phosphorus. Um, phosphorus um, is a fuel for various species of algae. Um, and if there's too much phosphorus, then you can have these large um, algae blooms that can create numerous problems. And then at least in Lake Erie, you have a problem where there's so much algae that when the algae dies off, it consumes all the oxygen in the middle of the lake. Um, so that's not good either. So we had a nutrient problem then. Um, it was addressed through uh, efforts that were taken. I know on the U.S. side in particular, um, phosphorus and detergents was banned. Um, which resulted in a great reduction in the amounts of phosphorus. And for a number of years, the nutrient problems were really pretty, pretty well controlled. 
Um, starting about 1995, for reasons which still aren't perfectly clear, or at least you'll hear lots of different theories about why, um, we started to see um, what we call um, dissolved phosphorus starting to creep up, and we started to see the blooms come back. And uh, in the 2000s, we had a number of years of, of some bad blooms. I think 2011 in particular was a very bad year. 2014, everyone remembers what happened in Toledo when people had uh, were told that their drinking water wasn't safe to drink uh, or to bathe in. So, you know, some of the problems we thought we had, had, had gotten them resolved, but they're back. And the nutrient issue is a tremendously challenging issue that we continue to struggle with. Now, conversely, um, a lot of the chemical pollutants that I mentioned earlier, again, you have many factories, manufacturers, again, steel, chemicals, paper, whatever it might be, discharging a lot of material to the Great Lakes. Um, well, that, those processes have stopped. Those facilities are now regulated. Um, sure, they may be discharging, um, but they're discharging pursuant to permits, which take into account well, how much of this pollution can the lake actually handle? So in some ways, the lakes are much cleaner than they were back then because you're not seeing the levels of industrial pollution that you were then. So that's been some excellent progress. By no means, I would say, uh, you know, are we out of the woods yet? We still have a tremendous amount uh, of issues that need to be addressed. But I would say even acknowledging the issues with nutrients, um, um, we are making good progress. Also, we're focusing now on issues that we weren't really focusing on then, at least to the same extent, like invasive species, uh, zebra mussels, quagga mussels, um, invasive carp coming out of the, uh, the Mississippi River Basin. Those were not issues so much of the day back then. Boy, are they issues today that we're struggling with. So we've made great progress in cleaning up a lot of the industrial pollutants. Um, a lot of those do remain in our areas of concern. So uh, I expect we'll talk about that a little bit. We're still just laser focused on cleaning up the AOCs that you mentioned earlier. Um, and I'll just mention the pollution in those AOCs is what's left over from those pre-1970 days. So Just a long time ago. Long, and it, that stuff sticks around for a long time unless you do something to remediate it. So so I, I think it's interesting that we've had this... Um, Agreement. And, and we've seen a lot of progress, even if, like you said, the blooms, they're back for reasons that we're not sure. But it's not like you fix an environmental problem. The environment's good. And, you, you know, forever. Right. And this stuff takes uh, monitoring and time and, and readjustment. But why do you think this has been successful, despite it just being an agreement? There's no teeth. Right. Like you mentioned. Um, why do you think this has been so successful without an enforcement uh, uh, mechanism? So for a couple of reasons. One, again, it's because it's work being done on both sides of the border. And areas of concern is a great example. Areas of concern, when they were first identified, um, uh, you know, leading up to the 1987 version of the Water Quality Agreement, um, a total of 43 of these were identified, 31 on the U.S. side. Uh, again, cleaning up only a few of them and only doing it on one side of the border does not address the binational issue. So, you know, that's, that's an example where, no, this needs to be done on both sides of the lake. Um, the other thing is, and this is the interaction, for example, between something like the Water Quality Agreement and the Clean Water Act. The Water Quality Agreement is not enforceable. As I mentioned, it, it basically tells the U.S., um, try to clean up the lakes using your own domestic authority. Again, that legal phrase. 
Well, that domestic authority does include things like the Clean Water Act, which most definitely does have teeth. Um, so certainly on the on the American side of the border, and there are similar programs, not the same, but similar programs on the Canadian side of the border. There are, um, you know, on the U.S. side, there's now a very, very significant uh, environmental regulatory regime, which simply didn't exist then. It's just kind of getting rolled out in the 70s, right? That's when it first started. So then... It almost strikes me as uh, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I've already forgotten the precise term. But the fact that everybody's supposed to use their the, both the U.S. and Canada are using their their own laws, right? Uh, so you explicitly don't have these sort of international negotiations and treaties and things like that. It seems like it'd be a, a really a nightmare to try to work together. Um, what am I saying? I'm saying it. It seems like it'd be really hard to come up with agreements on what enforcement actions there should be um, between different countries and things like that. And sort of leaving it to each country to come up their own way, that almost strikes me as a key part of the agreement, doesn't it? Well, communication, the reason the agreement, I think, has been successful and will continue to be successful is because of um, not just the need to, but the fact that the parties do have extensive ongoing communications with each other. They do that through something called the Great Lakes Executive Committee, which is a, uh, a very large binational committee co-chaired by the U.S. and Canada, where um, they, meet the, they meet twice a year. Uh, every three years, we have what we call the Great Lakes Public Forum. We just had one in Niagara Falls. And these are opportunities for the parties to get together and essentially report out what's happening, both on both sides of the border you know, in the lakes in general. But I think the larger issue is um, it's not just the involvement of the U.S. and Canada that's allowing things to get done under the water quality agreement. It's also the deep involvement of the states and the tribes and the province of Ontario and, to, and, and Quebec and the Canadian um, indigenous nations. Um, and local communities and academia. The, the reason that the water quality agreement has been successful, I think, is because of um, a very strong partnership that's enhanced by a lot of communication. You, you know, Stuart, you, you mentioned or you suggested that it's not easy to, for, you know, of a, if you're thinking about an ecosystem as big as the Great Lakes, how do you manage that? How do you possibly manage something that big? The only way you do it is by getting the right people engaged and continually talking to each other about what is happening in the lakes and what are all these entities doing to try to address that. That and money. It takes money. And that's where the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative came in um, starting in 2010. Can you talk about the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and how that's worked in terms of getting things done um, and maybe highlight a, a really great success story? Uh, Irene, I would love to talk about the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative because it, it, it has been a huge success story. And, and there's, a way, there's a way I can exemplify that. But first, let me explain what it is. So the, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative um, started in 2010 when, uh, back during the Obama administration, um, with very strong support from the Obama administration, Congress um, appropriated $450 million um, for Great Lakes restoration and protection work um, within the U.S. Great Lakes waters. Um, that money, through a, 
I won't go into the details, but that money was directed to my office, Glenpoke, the Great Lakes National Program Office. To put that in comparison, the year before that, Glenpoke's budget was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $70 million. Uh, Holy I, smokes. <laughs> I wasn't there then, but much, much smaller. So when the $450 million came in, um, it was pretty clear that Congress was serious about this. Well, since then, um, it's hard to believe that the GLRI has been in place for about, gosh, 12 years now. Um, but on average, Congress funded us for many years at about $300 million a year. Um, and it, it was a game changer. It allowed the United States to focus on Great Lakes issues um, that it simply hadn't had the, the fiscal firepower to address um, in earlier years. So, uh, and, and here's the example that I think puts it in perspective. So all, they, all those AOCs, all those areas of concern that you were talking about, again, 31 on the U.S. side. Between 1987, when AOCs, the concept of AOCs was first incorporated into the Water Quality Agreement, and 2010, when the GLRI started, one area of concern was delisted. One out of 31. That's not an impressive statistic by any. It's not very many, right? Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, because to do that kind of work, to dredge the sediment, to restore the habitat, is extremely expensive. So again, one out of 31 in roughly over 25 years, not impressive. When it, since the GLRI came along, um, we've now delisted an additional five more. So there are now six AOCs which have been delisted, which means they've been cleaned up, they're healed, they've been taken off the list. They are now on a par with the rest of the Great Lakes. They're no longer exceptionally or notably degraded. More importantly, we have completed the work, what we call management actions. That's a fancy way of saying the work that you have to do at a particular AOC um, to make it healthy again. We finished the work at, I'm, I'm probably one or two off now, but I think at an additional 10 AOCs, um, if not more. And, and what that means is once you complete the work, um, you have to monitor the AOC, you have to monitor its water quality, you have to monitor its fish, you have to monitor the ecosystem to be sure that it's been restored to um, a pre-AOC condition. So that's why for a lot of AOCs we'll say, well, it's not delisted, but management actions have been completed. In other words, the physical work is done. Now we just need to monitor it to make sure when it's properly healed, that's the word we like to use. And once it's healed, we'll take it off the list, we'll delist it. And so there's some number, small number, where you may have to go back and do some additional type of work. But generally speaking, uh, you would think that, that it's just a matter of time and getting the data that you need and stuff like that, right? That is accurate. If, if we did our job right and we correctly predicted what needed to be done to restore an AOC, then yes, over a period of years, on average, five years, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on the, the kind of work we had to do, then yes, we would expect the monitoring to show that, that we've addressed the issues that were there. The lake is no longer exceptionally degraded. It, again, it's on par with, uh, with other areas of, of the Great Lake and we'll, we'll delist it. So, and to just add to that, um, last year under the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, the GLRI was provided with an additional $1 billion, with a B, 
billion dollars, um, the bulk of which we're putting into cleaning up the remaining areas of concern. And sort of to close on this, I, I think the highlight is it is our goal that by the end of 2030, um, we will have the work completed at all but three AOCs, um, and all but nine of them will be delisted. So, you know, that's an extremely ambitious goal. But when you have that kind of, of, of congressional fiscal support, boy, can you get a lot done. Why is it that this is so popular from a bipartisan standpoint? That always boggles my mind, right? Because you think of uh, Congress can't get anything done or, you know, one party or the other party, like issues tend to be split based on party affiliation a lot of times. Um, and a lot of times they are. But but Great Lakes funding consistently has this bipartisan uh, support. Why do you think that is exactly? I, I think it's actually, a, a, it's a good and a pretty easy answer. It's because, Regardless of the parties involved, um, congressional members see the benefits of the AOC work. So, and not just the environmental work. And indeed, I think the reason that there's a lot of congressional support for the AOC program or the GLRI in general is that they've seen communities revitalized by, for example, the AOC work. Um, I, I like to say, um, if you clean it, they will come. So imagine, if you will, um, sort of a, the image of a Rust Belt Great Lakes city, old industry, old factories, which are now abandoned, neglected, maybe down by the waterfront, you're looking out over, you know, broken concrete and, and broken rebar, and you're seeing dead fish floating in the water and litter and that sort of thing. So um, imagine that area after it's been restored. Well, the environmental restoration, of course, we're the EPA. That's what we're really good at. And that's what's fundamental um, to our mission. But the benefits go way beyond the environmental restoration. And uh, it results also in economic uh, renovation and restoration. And I think even more importantly, community revitalization and restoration, where you've, you've taken a formerly degraded, abandoned, neglected area that nobody wanted to go to, and you restored it to an area where people do want to go there. And they want to fish, they want to swim, they want to recreate. It's a nice place that you can watch the sunset or the sunrise over the water. Well, then someone else decides, well, maybe I'm going to put in a, a brewery there or I'm going to put a coffee shop in. Or, you know what, people can fish here now, so I'm going to open up a, a, you know, a, a fishing outfittery of, of some sort. Well, then people come and then people realize, hey, this is a really cool area. I'd like to spend my time there you know what, let's have, let's have picnics there. Let's have festivals there. And it just begins to cycle. And Congress has seen that in reality. That's what's happened on the ground in a number of places. And I think in large part, that kind of, not just the benefits of the environmental restoration, but the community revitalization that results from that, um, I think everyone is in favor of that. So um, thinking about the future, um, you sort of described the the happily ever after story of the of the AOCs, which is which is really cool. Um, 
but like in terms of other issues, like, you know, contaminants of emerging concern, are there, are there things that are kind of like on the radar for the future of the water quality agreement? So yes, and I would say not just the future of the water quality agreement, but the future of the GLRI. And because again, they are inextricably linked. If we didn't have the GLRI, we wouldn't be making the progress we are under the water quality agreement. Um, I think that's just that's just a fact. Um, but yeah, certainly nutrients continues to be um, a very difficult issue, especially on Lake Erie. But with climate change and warming lakes, we anticipate that we may be seeing that. In fact, there's some evidence that we're seeing um, algal blooms in places that historically we haven't seen them before. Probably, conjecture is that it's related to warming water. Um, so that's going to be a difficult issue. Chemicals of emerging concern, Irene, that you mentioned, um, there are a lot of chemicals out there. And it's very difficult for science and regulatory agencies like EPA to keep up with everything that's been that's going on or that's been going on. PFAS is a good example of that. You know, PFAS has been introduced in the environment for decades now. But only in the last five years has it been widely recognized as a very serious concern in terms of drinking water and other issues. And now I think EPA is making a very determined effort um, on PFAS. But again, there are a lot of PFAS compounds out there, so it's not going to be easy to determine um, how to prioritize and how to address those. Invasive carp, we want very much to keep um, silver and bighead carp from moving from the Mississippi River Basin into the Great Lakes. The damage they could do is is uh, projected to be horrendous. Um, uh, so uh, that's a big issue. But not just environmental issues. I think we also have to look forward to the fact that we as a society are changing. As you know, this administration is very heavily focused on environmental justice. And I think one of the key things that we're, that we're trying to do in the Great Lakes environment is bring people and communities and representatives of those communities who have not historically been engaged in the environmental restoration conversation into that conversation. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, we want to make sure that we're engaging young people, but also we're working to try to engage communities which have been underserved and overburdened for many, many decades. That's a key priority of this administration that I think fits very nicely into the GLRI. So related to that, one thing that I, I just completely glossed right over, and I, you know, because I mentioned Canada a lot, but but there are also tribal and indigenous um, partners. I don't know if they're partners to the agreement or if it's just important um, to uh, keep interacting with them as, as, you know, people who originally inhabited uh, this area. Are, are tribal partners engaged? Has that like been more of a focus in the last decade or so, or, or is it something that still needs to be improved on? What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, let me just back up. So the agreement itself, there are only two parties to the water quality agreement. And by parties, I mean signatories. And that's that's the United States and Canada. But the agreement, you know, if you look at the 2012 version of the agreement, it repeats time and time again, language to the effect that the parties will work with and partner with states, tribes, indigenous nations, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, Right now, I can tell you that we are trying to work very closely with Great Lakes tribes on the U.S. Uh, side of the border. In fact, we had a, what we call a tribal forum about two weeks ago where uh, Glenn Pope, that's my office, invited our, our tribal partners. There's, a, there's 35 recognized 
tribes uh, on the U.S. side in the Great Lakes Basin, um, uh, and a, a much uh, a, another large number in Canada, which I, I don't know what that number is. But I would say that over the 10 years that the, the GLRI has been in place, um, it's enhanced our, our partnership with tribes. Um, we have something called the Distinct Tribal Program, where I think last year we allocated about somewhere upwards of $18 million to tribes alone um, so they could focus on their own project uh, projects, either in their in their on their reservations or in what we call ceded territories. Um, so yeah, we're trying very hard to make sure that we are engaging uh, the tribes across the Great Lakes Basin from New York to Minnesota. I think we're getting better. I think we have a ways to go. Um, I think we can always continue to improve that relationship, but they are most definitely a very significant partner here in the U.S. as we implement the GLRI and the Water Quality Agreement. And um, I think one of the really interesting things that tribes are bringing to the conversation is this concept of tribal ecological knowledge. You'll hear people talk about TEK. And what that basically means is, yes, there is Western science, but there's also an indigenous way of looking at things. Uh, there's an indigenous body of knowledge, which it may have been derived in a different way from the Western science, but it's real and it exists and tribes want to use it to their advantage. So to me, it's very interesting, the idea that tribes are saying as criteria for cleaning certain things up, don't just use certain scientific measurements that, that we as Westerners would be familiar with, how much dissolved salt is in the water, how turbid is the water. But there is, there is tribal knowledge that would also give you an indication of, of how well the ecosystem is recovering. And, and I think that's a fascinating concept that is, it's not new, but we're still finding our way through it and working with the tribes on that. Then to sort of sum up what I'm hearing from you on the water quality agreement, which again, I don't know a lot of details about until today. Um, the title of the show is literal. There's a lot I need to learn about the Great Lakes. Um, so we have this agreement. It was uh, signed in 1972. And since then, it's been uh, reauthorized or re-signed or whatever every every few decades. Um, and that's just sort of the broad framework. And then that's enforced within each individual country, um, thanks to things like funding. That's the critical mechanism. And here it's largely GLRI, which has helped to pay for AOCs and uh, contaminants of emergent concern and nutrient removal and a lot of research on all of these things. Um, but there's probably some other funding resources. And then there's also the enforcement and uh, mechanisms that are implicit in the local um you know, in each country's laws and each state's laws and things like that. And so those are kind of the big angles. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Stuart, the only, the only maybe light modification I would make is, so GLRI, but we're somewhat unique, you know, Glimpa, we are non-enforcement and non-regulatory. And, and yes, we're oh, certainly being, huh. we're being very generously funded by Congress to do great work. But I also need to point out that, for example, under the Clean Water Act, um, our water division programs, our clean water programs, wholly aside from the GLRI, um, that's what's resulted in, you know, the implementation of these permitting programs and enforcement programs. The Clean Water Act is what's the driver behind going after um, sewer overflows, which, you know, have been a problem in the Great Lakes. So it's the GLRI, I think, in concert with our additional regulatory programs, 
uh, on the U.S. side of the border that are driving the work. I, I wouldn't want to say that, 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 you know, the GLRI is the only thing that's making anything uh, happen because that would definitely not be the case. A lot of other federal regulatory programs are driving progress in terms of clean water. Well, is there anything else related to the uh, water quality agreement that you think we should talk about or share with our listeners that's really burning a hole in your uh, digital pocket here? I, I think I would point out to everyone that that I love to talk about the progress that, that we're making under the GLRI. But I would not want to mislead anyone into thinking that all the problems are solved, that we've got plans and money to solve all the problems out there. There are, and I anticipate will continue to be, very difficult challenges relating to the restoration and protection of the Great Lakes. Um, climate change now um, is going to be driving those in ways in which we can see in some cases, but in ways which I'm sure are as yet unforeseen. We, we don't know what all those impacts are going to be. Um, and even something as fundamental as nutrients from non-point sources um, is a very difficult problem to address. A lot of people are working on it. Um, I give a lot of people credit for trying to figure out how to address this issue, including ag community, our state's partners, um, uh, just a whole host of people. But it's not easy and it's not likely to be fast. So again, going back to where we started, you know, getting those young people involved, I would want to convey to the young folks out there um, if you're interested in environmental protection, oh boy, there's going to be a place for you because these problems, you know, the problems that I faced throughout my career, some of them may have been pretty well addressed, but there are a lot of problems still to be addressed. And again, problems that we're not even thinking of yet that will be coming down the pike. So we need those young people. And in particular, we'd like to get those, uh, uh, get the people in the communities of color to get engaged as well, because it's going to take everyone to get this done. Well, Chris, this is really interesting, and I love hearing about the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, and I've learned so much about it just in this, this nice conversation. And we appreciate the time, but that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions, the first of which is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Oh, boy. So like many people, I'm trying to eat, you know, and, and atone for the sins of my past. But if I were going to eat any donut that I could eat, I would have, well, where I grew up, they call them cream sticks. In other places, they think they call them long johns or, or they have other names. But a, a cream stick would be my go-to donut. So, Chris, what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? What makes it special? One of my all-time favorite things is going out on a headboat out of Port Clinton, Ohio, um, to go out for, depending on the day, four, eight hours, and just catching walleye. And then bringing the walleye back and, uh, you know, having them carved up and then cooking them on a grill. So, uh, you know, I, I talk to people down south, they don't know what a walleye is. Oh, it is a good fish to eat. Um, and fresh right out of the lake, that's a wonderful thing. The other thing I would say, though, is one of the beautiful things to me, one of the most beautiful things about the Great Lakes is that everyone who is in any way engaged or been touched by the Great Lakes, everyone has a very different and very unique special place and special story. And I, and I just think that's wonderful because it, it just conveys how this magnificent system means so many different things in so many different ways 
to so many different people, um, which I think in large part drives that passion of protecting and restoring it that Irene touched on earlier. That's exactly why we asked that question. Chris Kurleski, the director of the Great Lakes National Program Office with the US EPA, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a fascinating interview, and I'm, I'm glad to learn about the water quality agreement, which I'd sort of heard referred to, but I really didn't understand. And Lord knows Chris does. And so it's good to hear his perspective on it and, and really educational. Yeah, same um, same for me. Um, he always explains things so well. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. How about you, listener? Have you seen any changes in the Great Lakes in the last 50 years? How are things looking better to you? Send us an email, teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com, or you can leave a message on our hotline, uh, 765-496-IISG. What are your Great Lakes changes? We'll feature them on the show. Reach out. Great. So are you working on anything cool, Rini? What are our new, you are our strategic communicator for people who don't know. And it's, it's such a cool position because your job is to explicitly think kind of big picture. Yeah. Uh, so what, anything cool that you have going on right now? Well, just recently, uh, our annual newsletter was released. The, it's called The Helm. Um, and we've got some, a variety of stories in there, uh, talking about water supply. There's actually a, a area of concern story, um, on a research project that story you are familiar with, um, and, uh, some climate change. It covers a broad range of, uh, topics that we, that we focus on. No wonder I like this issue so much. I forgot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this helm, I think, came together really nicely. The, the photography is great. The design is great. The stories are great as always. And so, yeah, that's awesome. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And we encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reenie Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport, who is somewhat nearby, my understanding is. Uh, but I don't think I'll get to see him. Idaho. Idaho. Is it Idaho or... Anyway, the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check her work out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline. We haven't gotten a hotline call in a while. I want a hotline call. 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And keep grading those lakes. Beat it.